invite you to turn with me to Galatians chapter 4. I was mentioning a few Sundays ago while John was away and I was teaching the adult Sunday school class um, about a friend of mine that I had the privilege of partnering in ministry with. Uh, We led a a Bible study together in Hollywood uh, at a halfway house. It was for men who had been recently released from incarceration. We we're just trying to show them Christ. We would go through a book of the Bible, but really it was just the gospel every week. It was an amazing time in my own life as I was exposed to a fragment of the population that I hadn't been exposed to before. Some of the men that I met had been in prison for 40 years, and they had just been released, and this was their first stop on the way back into reentry into society. And we would minister to them and try to encourage them in their understanding of who Christ is and what a life in Christ would look like. And it was a wonderful time because there was an eagerness for the truth that we were giving them. Uh, vulnerability, perhaps, in their hearts as they face the uncertain future, and we would try to teach them the gospel. And as exciting of a time as it was, it also carried with it some of the saddest moments that I've experienced in my brief and limited ministry, because we'd get to know these men. We'd meet with them every Thursday night, hold out scripture to them, and it seems like they're grasping it. It seems like they're getting to know what we've been teaching them. And then the next Thursday, we'd show up ready to see them again, excited to continue helping them walk in Christ, and they were gone. Because they violated some term of living at the halfway house or some term of their probation. And we'd never see them again. We have no idea really what had happened. The simple fact was they were gone. There's still men on my heart that I think about, and I have no idea where they are in the world or if they're still alive, but we had those few brief weeks with them to show them Christ. Can you imagine spending 40 years incarcerated, the food served to you, guards watching you, Sleeping in a cell that you can't just open up and walk out of any time you wanted. Being told what to wear, where to go, when to eat. And then coming out, just sleeping in a room with a door that you can open would be shocking. It's a huge transition. Consider also that if you were arrested even in the early 2000s and incarcerated until now, the amount of technology that has advanced in that time period to come out into a society that is so different from what you had known before. One inmate who was, that I didn't know personally but found his story, who was in prison since 1975 and released in 2019, describes his experience while he was on a city street. He says, I saw all these people on the street talking to themselves. 
I thought I was bugging out. Someone finally told me that they were talking into earpieces. They were phones. So then I started thinking that they were secret agents all over the place because the last time I was in society, those were the only people who had equipment like that. I stood on the corner for two hours, semi-hypnotized, just frozen. It's a shocking experience. The statistics are that about 10,000 prisoners are released from state and federal prisons every week, a total of about 650,000 every year. And according to our federal government, about two-thirds of them end up arrested again within three years. We go back to our old ways. We don't know how to live in the freedom that we've been given. We tend to look at that segment of the population and think, well, that's, that's them. The human heart shares the same propensity to corruption in all of us. You may not commit crimes that would land you in jail, but amazingly enough, we have the propensity to experience and taste freedom in Christ and then put ourselves right back into jail. If you could get a hold of someone tempted for some reason to do something to put themselves back into prison, you would do all that you could to help them from doing that. Don't go back to your old ways. Don't get in trouble again. Stay safe. Stay free. Paul, in a sense, in the book of Galatians, is looking at prisoners who have been set free And his heart yearns for them not to put themselves back into prison. Christ has set you free from condemnation, guilt, shame, slavery to law-keeping as the means by which you prove your worth. And yet, Galatians acknowledges that the element of the human heart is to put itself back into slavery again. Maybe not to the exact ways that you had known before, but to go back to the very things that Christ has set you free from. The tricky part is that you might be able to say, well, Jesus set me free from alcohol or from lust or from greed. And you know that that's true. But the trap is that you may not go back down the same exact road that you had come from, but you may go back down another road that is just as enslaving as the previous one. And the road that is just as enslaving, but actually a bit more diabolical and deceitful, is the road of self-righteousness. Because you get set free from the guilt and shame of sin. But then you take on your shoulders the responsibilities to be this righteous person who has this church look about you and you bear all the weight of your status in church society or even before God and you've put yourself right back into shackles again 
It may not be the shackles of alcoholism or lust, but it's the shackles of self-righteousness. And Christ has come to set you free from that sinful lifestyle just as much as the sinful lifestyle that we blame the world for. The thing missing when you're enslaved to self-righteousness and the thing missing when you're enslaved to sin is a true, real relationship with God. That's the thing that's missing from both of those. Let's read Galatians 4, 8 through 20 as we hear Paul pour out his heart to the Galatians not to return to the, their former ways, not to return to slavery. Galatians 4, verses 8 through 20. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days, and months, and seasons, and years. I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that, if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out, that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I am present with you. My little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you, I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. Let's pray. Father, use this passage of Scripture and the truths it has in it to strengthen us, to keep us from returning to old ways, to weak and worthless ways. Father, we ask that you would do this in Jesus' name. Amen. In order to stay connected with the true gospel, we need to remember our past And also understand our present. We need to see where we were, and we need to see where we are now. So we want to use this text to do that for us, so that we'll abide in the gospel, and not return to old, weak, worthless ways. The gospel is simply the good news that Jesus came to rescue sinners. The rescue includes forgiveness of sins, and adoption into God's family. Galatians has been letting us know that in Christ, by faith in Christ, we are justified, which means that we are declared righteous in the sight of God, simply by faith and not by works of the law. The book of Galatians has also been teaching us that as we are brought into a relationship with God by faith, we are considered sons of God, children, heirs 
of the promises that God has for us. So he says in chapter 4, verse 7, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. And all of this is because of God's work, not because of your works. That's the refrain of Galatians. It's not works of the law. It's simply faith in Christ that you receive all of these blessings. And in the embracing of the gospel and receiving of the forgiveness of sins and being welcomed into God's family, you are then considered an heir of all the good things that God intends to give those who belong to him. But there's a temptation to minimize the sufficiency of this good news. We might think, well, it's just too good to be true. It can't all just be by faith. And so then we take on works to try to think that we can do something to earn some of this. But the repetition of Galatians is, every good thing that you know about salvation, if you can think of anything good about your relationship with God, it is not because of your works. It is because of Jesus Christ. And you've received it by faith in him. And so if you've received all of these good things by faith, then why would you ever try to add anything to it? You're just going to destroy it by getting your hands in it. Let God's work be pristine and receive it by faith. Well, as we've been reminded about this again and again in Galatians, Paul now turns in verse 8 to more of a direct appeal to these dear people of Galatia who are taking on works of the law as a means of status before God. And he appeals directly to them to remember their past life. And as they are called to remember, we would do that as well. And so if you want a heading for this section, you could say, remember your past life. One of the ways that we steer clear of the trap of legalism is just to think about what you were and what you've been freed from. Paul says in verse 8, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. He describes their condition before Christ in a couple of ways. One of the ways is that they did not know God. They did not know God. That's not just true for the Galatians, but that's really true for everyone apart from Christ. You didn't know God. You didn't know him. It was a life marked by not knowing God. That's not to say that you didn't know things about God. Romans 1 tells us that everybody knows about God. His eternal attributes, his invisible attributes and power have been made known to us through creation. And so even if you don't have a Bible, you know there's a God, you know something of what he's like. So everybody knows to some degree about God, but that's not the point here. The point is that they didn't know God. They didn't know him in a personal way. And this description about not knowing God is a characteristic way of describing unbelievers. In 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 8, describes... When Jesus comes back in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God. 
Titus chapter 1.16 says, They profess to know God, but deny him by their works. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 5, describes Gentiles as those who do not know God. And Jesus, speaking to the religious Jews in John chapter 8, says, You know neither me nor my Father. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. To not know God is to not know him for who he is as applied to your life specifically. Think of the people in the Bible who knew God, who had a personal experience or a personal relationship with him. Adam certainly would have known God as his creator. Abraham knew God as a promise giver and a promise keeper. Joseph would have known God as the one who works all things together for good. Moses would know God as the God who delivers. Ruth, when she describes God, simply says, your God will be my God. David knew God as the God who forgives. Daniel knew God as the God who protects. Peter knew God as the God who restores. Paul knew God as the God who saves. John knew God as the God who loves. Those are not abstract realities. If you had a chance to talk to those men, they could speak very personally about their knowledge of God as their creator, their deliverer, their redeemer, their savior, their promise giver, their promise keeper. They could probably go on and on about their God and all that he's done for their life. And so when Paul says, formerly you did not know God, you have to understand that in a personal way. You didn't know him. You didn't know these things about him personally applied to you. You didn't know him as the God who loves, as the God who promises, as the God who keeps his promises, as the God who delivers, as the God who restores, as the God who forgives. That's your past. You didn't know God. You may have known something of what he has revealed himself in nature, his power, that he's eternal, that he's judge. There may be lots of ways that you could describe your past life apart from Christ. You could probably go on and on about that. Sinful, wayward, lost, reprobate, awful human being, wouldn't want to be around you. All of those things you could describe yourself as, but maybe basically you could describe your life before Christ as a life when you did not know God. Formerly, when you did not know God, Paul says, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. There were things that you knew You didn't know God, but you knew slavery. You didn't know God, but you knew non-gods. Again, you could describe your life as the Galatians could, and you could describe all the types of things that you knew. Maybe you knew sports. Maybe you knew pride. Maybe you knew alcohol. Maybe you knew women. Maybe you knew men. And you could go on and on about all these things that you knew, and you knew them well, and your life was surrounded with these things. But you'd have to describe them all as non-gods, and you'd have to describe them as things that enslaved your life, 
rather than set you free. A life of not knowing God, a life of slavery, a life of serving things that are not God's. What a deplorable depiction of your past life. Do you feel insulted? It's not building you up. This is what you were like before Christ. Paul says to Galatians and to us, it ought not to be something that we would ever want to go back to. You need to remember your past. Remember it truly as it really is, not in a glorified sense of, oh, that's when I got to do all the fun things. That's all slavery. That's the lie of it, is it makes you think it's freedom. But you could not deliver yourself from those things. They dominated your life. And at the bottom of it all, you didn't know God. That's your past. You need to remember your past in order to not want to go back to it. Well, you also need to rejoice in your present relationship. Rejoice in your present relationship. In order to not slip back into slavery, rejoice in your present relationship. Verse 9 begins with a hard contrast. Compared to what you were, he says, but now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God. He now develops their present, the Galatians' present experience, is described as having come to know God, then he clarifies it a bit, having come to be known by God. Rejoicing in these realities will help you from slipping back into the slavery of sin or the slavery of self-righteousness because it reminds you what you have right now. And it's also important in the context of, of Galatians to remember how you received these things. How do you know God and how are you known by God? The answer Galatians would give is not by works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. These are such sweet sentiments, it's worth thinking about for a moment. First, knowing God. You know him personally. Again, it's not some abstract reality that concedes that God exists. That's too small of a way to put it. To know God... is to know his mercy when you're experiencing grief and distress. To know God is to know that he's forgiven you of all of your sins, wiped all of them out. To know God personally is to know that when in your, you're in your darkest moments, he's still guiding you, he's not abandoned you, It's to know that he's led you through those days. To know God is to know his tenderness. When you're low and feeling like you're just a smoldering wick, knowing that he's not snuffed you out. 
To know God is to know that he actually has rejoiced over your salvation. To know God is to know his kindness as he cares for you as a loving father. It's to know the grace that he's given to you through Jesus Christ. It's all personal. You can't take these abstractions about God's omniscience or omnipotence or eternality and just think that they don't relate to you. They're all personal. It's to know God. But Paul is very quick to help us steer our thoughts almost in another direction because he says, but now you have known God or rather known by God. You've come to be known by God. If you could only choose one, and it's kind of a false dichotomy, but if you could only choose one to be known by God or to know God, which one would you choose? To be known by God might be a little bit more important. But they come together, thankfully, and you don't have to choose. They're of a piece. It may be more important to say that God knows you. And Paul is quick to offer this slight correction to a statement, lest we think that in some way we have just earned our knowledge of God. He puts the credit and the glory on the God who knows you. God is the one who saves. God is the one who knows you. It's basically equivalent to saying that God has adopted you as children, that you belong to him, that he knows you as a son or as a daughter. To be known by God, Jesus says in John chapter 10, verse 14, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. He says in John 10, 27, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. To be known by God means that you belong to him, that you're not unknown to God, some blank and nameless individual. I've had the experience on a number of occasions, and you probably have experienced this too, where somebody gets your name wrong. And it might be somebody that you know or maybe somebody you not know. For me, I've got two first names. And so a lot of times, people who kind of pass off familiarity with me will call me Craig. And as soon as they do that, I know they don't have a clue who I am. Or they might call me Andrew, and I think the only person who calls me Andrew is my sister. You don't know who I am. To be known by somebody is a sweet thing. There are lots of people in this world that I I know who they are, and I get the question asked of me, oh, do you know so-and-so? And And I will a lot of times say, yes, I know them. I don't know if they know me. What a sad thing if you were to say, I know God, but I'm not sure if he knows me. If you're in Christ... One of the great blessings that is given to you is that God does not forget your name. He doesn't get it wrong. He doesn't forget who you are. He knows you. And he even says in Revelation 2.17 that he knows you well enough that he will give you a new name.
Jesus says that he names his sheep. He calls them by name. To be known by God. That's your present life if you're in Christ. You know God and you're known by him. How did you get this? How did you come to be known by the almighty creator who spoke the whole world into existence? Through Christ, received by faith and not by works of the law. If you are known by God on the basis of faith in Jesus Christ, then why would you try to add anything else into that? Isn't that enough? Don't slip back into a system that would give you less than what you have now by faith in Christ. So in order to not slip back into the slavery of self-righteousness or sin, remember your past. Remember where you've come from. And rejoice in your present relationship. And then third, in order to not slip into slavery again, don't return to your past life. Don't go back. Paul says in verse 9, But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? Paul's exasperated by the Galatians. As they've received all of these blessings in Christ, they're turning back to weak and worthless things. It is our way to make things harder than they need to be. We almost always do that. We make things harder. We complicate things. We mess things up. In this case, we do that by trying to slip back into old rhythms, old routines of life, or even new routines that have nothing to do with Christ. Paul asks this question. It's not really meant to be answered directly by the Galatians, but it is meant to be considered by them and by us. How can you turn back to these weak and worthless things? It's a bit of a play on words because it's the same word that can be used for repentance. And repentance is that very act when you come to faith in Christ, you are forsaking every hope and everything else other than Christ. And you're turning from those things and you're turning to Christ. And what Paul is saying, how can you turn from Christ back to those things that you've already left? How can you turn back to them? And he describes these things as weak and worthless. They have no strength, and they have no financial backing. They're impoverished, and they have no muscles. In this case, it's a fairly shocking statement because Paul's not saying that they're returning to idols. That's where the Galatians would have come out of. These were Gentiles who would have worshipped the pantheon of gods of the ancient world. That's what have, that would have been descriptive of their life. 
They would have had a bunch of gods, a bunch of sacrifices to make. They would have lived that type of pagan lifestyle. But what is being brought to these Gentiles now is not a return to idolatry. Rather, there have been false teachers who have come in among these believers and are teaching them to keep the Mosaic law. They're teaching them to follow a path of ritualistic feasts, of dietary laws, of days that they need to keep and abide by, and of circumcision. And in doing this, it might sound good because they could point to chapter and verse in the Bible that tells you to be circumcised. And they think, well, we need to do this. We have Christ, but we also need to do these things. We need to wear these clothes, and we need to keep these food laws, and we need to, we need to, we need to. And they miss the fundamental reality that something drastic has happened. Jesus Christ has entered the world. And the law was there to lead us to Christ. And once the law leads us to Christ, there's no reason to go back to it. Because now you follow Christ, you don't follow the law. It doesn't mean that you're lawless. It means that you have Christ as your Lord. And so when Paul says that they are turning back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, they're not turning back to idolatry. They're turning back to self-righteousness. And he calls that self-righteousness weak and worthless. He calls them these things elementary principles. They're the ABCs. They're the things that are meant to lead you on to greater things, which is Christ. Paul is so against this because Jesus Christ has come, he's been cursed under the law, he's risen again to give all who believe in him newness of life that they may walk in that newness of life. And so everything compared to Christ then is weak. The law can't raise you to life. It's poor. It can't give you righteousness. But Jesus Christ rose from the grave. He has the power over sin and death. Jesus Christ is rich. All of his righteousness credited to you. You don't need one coin more of righteousness. It's all in Christ. And so Paul calls them weak and worthless. So don't turn to those things. Don't turn to those things. He describes the pattern of life that they're living now. He says in verse 10, you observe days and months and seasons and years. These are referring to the Sabbaths, to the fasting days, Pentecosts, Passovers, feasts of booths. All things meant to lead us to Christ. If you consider who's writing this, it's pretty striking. Paul was a Pharisee. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was head of the class. He was the best of the best. He kept every feast day. He kept every jot and tittle of the law. He kept it all. He would have fasted regularly. He wouldn't have missed a single day. He was always on time. Punctuation was his middle name. But at that time... 
that he met Christ on the road to Damascus, you realize that all of that was loss. All was loss compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus as his Lord. And so he, the Hebrew of Hebrews, left it all behind and found all of his righteousness in Jesus Christ. How much he must have ached then to see a church going backwards to what Paul was when he didn't really know God. So dear friends, there are temptations all around you. It may not have the nomenclature of feasts and Sabbaths, but there are temptations all around you to build a schedule of righteousness into your life. And it does not point you to Jesus Christ. Beware of these things. I can't enumerate them for you. You need to think what your own heart is drawn to to try to find credit of your own and your own works. Consider where Christ is not everything to you and you might find an enclave of self-righteousness hiding. Paul says in verse 11, I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. So stark is the reality of their potential departure into self-righteousness that Paul thinks his labors may have been empty, worthless. Why? Because they're not following Christ. There's a lot of verses left and not a lot of time. And so I will spare you We'll pick up on that next time. Let me point you to one verse that is so good that you need to be thinking about it this week. It's verse 19. The problem with sin is it really takes your focus off of God and it puts it on yourself. Just whatever gratifies you, whether it be anger or lust. It's about what gratifies you. It's you. You are the center of the world. Self-righteousness still has you as the center of the world because it makes it about what you do for good and for righteousness' sake. Both of those perspectives on life, whether you are frantically searching after every indulgence that you can pursue or whether you are trying to be a goody two-shoes that gets into heaven. Both miss the point of verse 19. My little children, a term of endearment, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. God is not looking for a bunch of law keepers, and he's not looking for a bunch of sinners. He's looking for a bunch of people who have Christ in them. This is why we encourage you to live a Christ-centered life, a Christ-filled life, a life that is all about Christ from A to Z. All about Christ. We'll unpack that a bit more next time. Let's pray.
Father, it seems that your word continues to rebuke us for taking any credit for our salvation or trying to earn any of it. I pray, Father, that this would not just feel to us like a beating down, but Lord, you would lift us up to set our eyes on Christ in whom all things are ours. Father, would you be pleased to show to us the spots in our life where we are not trusting in Christ, any ways that we are returning to old ways. And I pray that Christ would be formed in us. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. Thank you that we can know you. We can call you our Father. We praise you that we are known by you through Christ Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.